Remember the 90s? When MTV still meant music television? When people still bought CDs? When legends like Chris Cornell and Dimebag Daryl still rocked the earth? Well, you can go back to those halcyon years regularly with Sounds Like Teen Spirit, the ultimate 90s radio show podcast. On each episode, I review and play from the latest albums by decade-defining artists like Pearl Jam, Megadeth, and Primus, and discuss current developments with those artists, all amid a playlist of 90s and 90s-adjacent music, of course. Again, that sounds like Teen Spirit. New episodes premiere Sundays, 8 to 10 p.m. on 89.9 KBGA Missoula, and past episodes are archived at kbga.org teen-spirit.
Atlas Shaker kicking off this program with Hey Dude off their 1996 debut album, K. Welcome to the award-winning Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. I'm your thalassic host, Ian. This episode's got music from the likes of Caius, L7, Pavement, At the Drive-In, Gruntruck, 311, Incubus, The Screaming Trees, Catherine Wheel, and The Notorious B.I.G. Plus, I'm going to be reviewing and playing a song apiece from the new Mudhoney album, Plastic Eternity, released on April 7th, the new Metallica album, 72 Seasons, and new Overkill album, Scorched, both released on April 14th, and the new Therapy album, Hard Cold Fire, and new Smashing Pumpkins album, Autumn Act 3, both released on May 5th. I'll start with Metallica. I feel like Metallica may have an unfairly high level of expectation levied against them. Throughout the 80s, the band were universally and unreservedly revered as heroic leaders of the burgeoning thrash metal scene. However, things changed dramatically for them in the 90s after they crossed over to the mainstream hard rock charts under the guidance of producer Bob Rock. On one hand, their newfound success on the charts helped cement them as one of the biggest bands in the world across all genres, which went a long way towards legitimizing metal in the eyes of the general public. On the other, it opened the band up to increased scrutiny from both their alienated original fans and the newer, more fickle ones whose attention they attracted, and that has continued to loom over them all throughout their career ever since. After the mostly poor reception to 2003's Sane Anger, even Metallica themselves apparently felt they might have lost their way, and they started making a concentrated effort to get back into fans' good graces. They cut ties with Bob Rock and hitched their wagon to Rick Rubin, who has a reputation for bringing out the best in virtually all the rock and hip-hop acts he's produced, and in 2008 they released Death Magnetic, an album widely hailed as a return to Metallica's thrashy roots. You'd think that would be enough to pacify all the veritable critics amid their fanbase, but not quite. Although I recall Death Magnetic being well-received at the time of its release, and I personally loved it, a number of fans were rather upset over the compression levels in the album's production, and nowadays the album is seemingly ranked just a cut above Load, Reload, and Saint Anger by the average Metallica fan. The band's 2016 album, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, had a slightly more mixed response at launch, and again, I seem to dig it more than most, though at least that one's overall public perception has held up better than Death Magnetics over the years. It's hard not to wonder if those two albums would have been more universally beloved had Metallica never gone mainstream. Truly, Metallica fans are just like Star Wars fans in that they apparently love picking apart the thing they're a fan of about as much as they love the thing itself, and it kind of pains me to say that because I fear I too may be falling under that characterization in the face of Metallica's latest. The truth is that 72 Seasons, whose title refers to those first formative 18 years of a person's life, is ultimately a pretty good Metallica album, but despite that, the overall tone of this review is likely going to read as mixed or unimpressed to most of you. I mean, how many other metal bands could you say that sort of thing about? At any rate, there's no accusing Metallica of not putting in the work here. 72 Seasons crams no shortage of headbanging riffs, elaborate guitar solos, beefy instrumental breakdowns, and surprisingly good late-career James Hetfield vocals into its 77-minute runtime, which, though excessive, is more or less the standard for Metallica albums released since 1996, and the album has been solidly mixed by the band and producer Greg Feidelman. So why don't I like it more? 
On my initial spin of 72 seasons, basically all of my favorite moments were its four pre-release singles, Lux Eterna, Screaming Suicide, If Darkness Had a Son, and the title track. Either that's because the songs had more time to grow on me in light of prior exposure, or because Metallica truly understood the best of what they had to work with in previewing the new album. At this point in time, I'm more inclined to think it's the latter. Those four singles seem to represent the most harmonious balance between familiar and refreshing songwriting from Metallica, though I still maintain that lead single Lux Eterna sounds an awful lot like Megadeth. By comparison, I found myself feeling somewhat underwhelmed by the bulk of the deeper cuts. Some of them had more in common, at least to me, with the less replayable tracks off the previous two albums than the ones on the more desired end of that spectrum, and others start out promising but proceed to lose my interest by the time they are over. I'm thinking the boys in Metallica might have some use for a firm editor in their camp. This album's near 80 minutes of unrelenting thrash is definitely too much to chew on in one sitting, and though I've found myself to be notably more appreciative of its various songs when consuming them in a standalone context, particularly the standout 11-minute closer Enamorata that otherwise comes up long after fatigue has set in, they still tend to leave me feeling somewhat unfulfilled for whatever reason. 72 Seasons could very well be a slow grower, and I half expect, and genuinely hope, that by the time the next Metallica album rolls around, I'll be wishing it could have been as great as its predecessor, but overall, I'm personally finding this one to be inferior to the last two. Alright, so the first time I heard the song I'm about to play, I didn't think it had a lot going for it other than its excellent main riff, but after a few more spins, I have deemed it to be one of the album's most undisputable highlights. This next song's called Chasing Light. Enjoy! There's no lights!
Jake the Snake Roberts. Who gives a damn about those call letters? KBGA, KGBA, whatever. It doesn't matter. You know where the music's at, don't you? Stupid.
Motley Crue with Bitter Pill off their 1998 compilation, Greatest Hits. I've gone off before on this program, seven months ago in fact, about how cursed I believe the current Motley Crue reunion to be, but man, I was not expecting it to get this much more cursed so soon. In late October, I reported that guitarist Mick Mars retired from the band due to his chronic spinal condition, ankylosing spondylitis, making it too difficult for him to continue touring. He was to remain a member of Motley Crue for unique band events as well as future studio recordings, even though frontman Vince Neil suggested in a recent interview that there won't be any, but Rob Zombie guitarist John Five would be replacing him on the road. Around the time, former Crew vocalist John Karabi, who briefly took over the position in the mid-90s while Neil was out of the band, theorized that Mars did not retire on his own terms and was in fact let go by the other members, based on the fact that it was the band making his retirement announcement and not Mars himself. As it turns out, Karabi may have been right on the money. In early April, Mars filed a lawsuit against Motley Crue, alleging that he was unilaterally removed from the band, had his cuts of their profits reduced by 80%, and was gaslighted by bassist Nicky Six over his guitar performance on the 2022 stadium tour, also asserting that he was the only member who didn't use any backing tracks. In response, Motley Crue issued a statement calling Mars's lawsuit, quote, unfortunate and completely off base. The statement claimed that his allegations about his status in the band and profits were in accordance with an agreement he signed in 2008 that he was manipulated into filing the lawsuit by, quote, advisors who are driven by greed, and that, quote, during the last tour, Mick struggled to remember chords, played the wrong songs, and made constant mistakes which led to his departure from the band. At this point, the dispute is still a deadlocked case of he said, he said, but personally, I'm more inclined to believe in Mars's side. Frankly, the guys in Motley Crue strike me as being rather sleazy people based on all the, well, dirt we have on them, and Nikki Six is undoubtedly the slipperiest snake of the lot. The gaslighting Mars alluded to in his lawsuit seems exactly like something Six would do, especially given the way he's been talking about Mars as of late. In an interview last month with Planet Radio, he very condescendingly referred to Mars as being a little bit confused. Even more damning was his recent reveal that the band was in the studio with John Five recording new music. In other words, the very thing that Neil suggested they wouldn't do anymore not too long ago, and that Mars was supposed to still be a part of if they did. To me, this all but confirms that Mars was unilaterally removed from Motley Crue as he claims. Regardless which side is right, though, it's not lost at all on me that none of this ugliness would be happening if Motley Crue didn't go back on their cessation of touring agreement following their 2014 through 2015 farewell tour. I recall not long after the announcement of their farewell tour, Six did an interview where he expressed his desire for the band to cement their legacy and go out on top, four brothers in rock finishing what they started together on their terms and while still capable of putting on a good show. If they actually stayed retired after their final bow in 2015, they would have had precisely that. But I guess Six must have stopped giving a shit about Legacy sometime since then, because much of the band's tacked-on epilogue that began with their 2019 reunion announcement has been a stain on it. I like the guys in Motley Crue less now, and wish they never got the band back together. And I say that as a fan. That said, I've always perceived Mars as being the crew member with the most integrity. 
He remained in the band continuously from its foundation until his so-called retirement, despite struggling against his spinal condition pretty much the whole time, even undergoing hip replacement surgery in 2004 so that he could tour for longer. And he had the sense to generally keep his head down while the other members hogged all the tabloid attention. Here's hoping he gets what is almost certainly owed to him, in court or out of it. Anyway, before Motley Crue, I played 14th Street Break by the Beastie Boys off their 2007 instrumental album, The Mix-Up. Freeze Time by 311 off their 1999 album, Sound System. And Subtle Poison by the Screaming Trees off their 1989 album, Buzz Factory. Once again, you're listening to Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. To like this show on Facebook, go to facebook.com SLTS2. And to hear this and other episodes of the program after the broadcast, go to kbga.org teen-spirit. Alright, next I'm going to review and play a song from the new Mudhoney album, Plastic Eternity. From the first time I heard the latest Mudhoney album's lead single, Almost Everything, I knew we were in for a particularly special outing. The single somehow achieved a harmonious interplay between thick, grungy guitar riffs and peppy, clean, tribal-style drumming, resulting in a song that feels both unmistakably like Mudhoney and like nothing they've done before. And although the album to follow, Plastic Eternity, is overall more familiar-sounding than that first taste seemed to indicate, it still does manage to be a rather special Mudhoney record in a number of unexpected ways. Mudhoney have always skewed more towards the punk side of the grunge equation, between the quick and punchy nature of their music and frontman Mark Arm's fierce and sardonic politically charged lyricism, and of course Plastic Eternity's got all that in spades. These last several years of American politics have a armed arm to the teeth with rage bullets, and he came into this album guns blazing against all manners of right-wing inanity with songs like Cascades of Crap, Human Stock Capital, and Cry Me an Atmospheric River. I realize I might be making the album sound like just another snotty liberal punk screed, but if it is, it's one that gets distracted from the mission quite frequently. About half of Plastic Eternity's tracks can be considered outliers, which maybe also means the term doesn't apply here? Kind of like when the minority grows into the majority? At any rate, almost everything is far from the only curveball on the album. Flush the Fascists is propelled by a quirky synth loop over which Arm employs bathroom metaphors to, you know, dump on said fascists. Severed Dreams in the Sleeper Cell and One or Two are extensive, meandering, neo-psychedelia jams, both ranking among the album's lengthiest cuts. Tom Herman's Hermits grooves along with a funky and bluesy swagger, and Little Dogs, while sonically resembling a typical mid-tempo Mudhoney track, is a cheeky ode to lapdogs everywhere, inspired by Arm's own dog. So you see, even amid all its bristling political outrage, Plastic Eternity is decidedly one of Mudhoney's most playfully experimental albums, belonging in the same company as 2002's Since We've Become Translucent and 2006's Under a Billion Suns. The album in general is rough around the edges, and some songs feel a tad undercooked, but that might have to do with the fact that longtime bassist Guy Madison elected to move back to his native Australia last year, and that the band made a point to hastily bang out the whole album before he left. The rush job may have been worth it, though, as the album affords Madison a rather strong presence on what could very well be his final outing with the band. 
Ultimately, although Plastic Eternity could have stood to benefit from a little more polish and some tighter editing, it nonetheless proves to be an agreeably solid warts and all Mudhoney album, housing a wealth of rewards and surprises for fans. Alright, this next song may be among the more straightforward tracks on the album, but it's also unequivocally one of its best. This is a song predominantly taking aim at COVID deniers, titled Here Comes the Flood. Enjoy!
This portion of KBGA is brought to you by Imagination Brewing Company. By supporting over 1,700 community events in its educational center, Imagination brews handcrafted beer to make a positive impact on Missoula and beyond. For more information about what's on tap, weekly live music offerings, or to reserve the center, call 406-926-1251 or visit imaginationbrewing.com. There ain't no secrets anymore My name's been hanging on the hook outside your door just an old eye so I got this feeling I can't keep it down anymore Bring me some healing St. Cecilia Carry me home to your house Oh, Drying 
Brothers with St. Cecilia off their 2015 EP of the same name. So, um, remember how in the last episode of the show, during my review of the new Depeche Mode album, I observed how the death of keyboardist Andy Fletcher catalyzed the surviving members into completing the album much faster than it would have been otherwise? Well, even though I cited the Foo Fighters as a counterexample to that phenomenon, in the sense that they were severely derailed by the death of a key member instead of refocused, they actually ended up pulling themselves together in a similar fashion. I suspected that Dave Grohl was no longer keen on writing for the Foo Fighters following the sudden death of his longtime drummer and best friend Taylor Hawkins, and maybe he wasn't at first, but as it turns out, Hawkins' death had sparked an outpouring of therapeutic songwriting from Grohl, culminating in a brand new Foo album slated to come out next month. For most of their career, the Foo Fighters have averaged a new album every three to four years, and this next one will be the first to arrive just two years out from its immediate predecessor since 2007's Echoes, Silence, Patience, and Grace. If Hawkins had lived, the band presumably would have toured on 2021's Medicine at Midnight for a little while longer, and their 11th album, whenever it might have dropped, would have been something entirely different. But in this timeline, we're getting the album, But Here We Are, which is described by its press release as a brutally honest and emotionally raw response to everything Foo Fighters endured over the past year, with songs that, quote, run the emotional gamut from rage and sorrow to serenity and acceptance and myriad points in between. These statements are reinforced by the album's first three singles, the mournful mid-tempo rockers Rescued, Under You, and Show Me How. From a musical standpoint, they're nothing the Foo haven't done before and in fact embody a more familiar sound than the bulk of Medicine at Midnight, but it's practically impossible not to hear Grohl's impassioned lyrics without emphasizing with the fraught and vulnerable man who wrote them, and I expect the album as a whole will be a similarly affecting listen. On a related note, the Foo Fighters unveiled their official replacement for Hawkins during a global livestream event last Sunday, just a few days ahead of their current tour. The band's new stickman is Josh Fries, one of the most prolific mercs for hire in the drumming world today. Fries has served as a touring drummer for a number of prominent acts, such as Nine Inch Nails, Weezer, and Guns N' Roses, and as a session musician, he is credited with recording on over 400 albums to date. However, he did not record the drum tracks for the upcoming Foo Fighters album. Dave Grohl recorded all the drums himself, just as he had done for the band's first two albums before Hawkins joined. I suspect that would have been the case even if Fries was recruited in time, as Grohl most likely would have insisted on being the one to fill Hawkins' shoes on this tribute to his dearly departed friend. But Here We Are is scheduled for release this coming Friday, June 2nd, and is a significant contributor to what's shaping up to be a big day for rock music. Aside from the Foo, Rancid are gearing up to release their first new album in six years, titled Tomorrow Never Comes, on that day. Ben Folds will be putting out his first proper solo album in 15 years, titled What Matters Most, and Avenged Sevenfold will be issuing Life Is But A Dream, their first new album since 2016. Okay, I know that last one isn't a 90s artist, but they are still another major band with a highly anticipated album adding to an already stacked June 2nd. You can expect me to review and play from the other three of those albums on the next episode of Sounds Like Teen Spirit. Anyway, before the Foo, I played Everglade by L7 off their 1992 album Bricks Are Heavy, Broken Nose by Catherine Wheel off their 1997 album Adam and Eve, and 198D by At The Drive-In off their 1999 EP Via. You're still listening to Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. 
To like this show on Facebook, go to facebook.com SLTS2. And to hear this and other episodes of the program after the broadcast, go to kbga.org teen-spirit. Alright, next I'm going to review and play a song from the new Therapy album, Hard Cold Fire. Therapy have managed to remain consistently active over their three-plus decades as a band. They've released 16 albums in a span of 32 years and have historically never taken much more than three years at most between albums. However, Hard Cold Fire, the band's first post-pandemic effort, just arrived on the scene nearly five years shy of its immediate predecessor, 2018's Cleave. While I'm not actually sure if COVID even had a hand in that longer-than-average turnaround time, in fact, many bands have actually thrived under pandemic conditions, Therapy's latest shows that, whatever the reason for it, they haven't lost a single step in the interim. Hard Cold Fire continues in the direction of the album before it and further cements what has become Therapy's signature sound. In essence, the intersection where alt-metal and pop-punk collide. Most songs skew more heavily towards the former end of that spectrum, others a bit more towards the latter, but all ten tracks sound distinct from one another and contribute something to the fabric of the album. Notable songs include lead single Joy, with its satisfying start-stop dynamics, soaring choruses and riffs that Helmet would be proud of, Two Wounded Animals, which harmoniously marries the sounds of Fugazi and early Deftones, Poundland of Hope and Glory, a metal-tinged pop-punk gem that would have been right at home on the 1994 therapy album Trouble Gum, to Disappear, which earns the noble distinction of heaviest on the album with its pummeling instrumentation and hissing vocals, Mongrel, which evokes the punkier Melvin's songs from the Houdini-slash-Stonerwitch era before going full muse for its chorus, and closing track Days Collapse, the album's lone ballad which serves as a nice come-down song after the intensity of the preceding nine. Hard Cold Fire is a rather brief album at roughly 31 minutes in length, and all of its tracks are more or less in the 2.5 to 3.5 minute range. That might not feel sufficient to some fans after a near five-year wait, but the general song quality is up to snuff, even if songs like Ugly and, oddly enough, Album Opener, They Shoot the Terrible Master don't make as strong an impression as most of the others. The album may not exactly revolutionize therapy, but it harnesses and employs the band's greatest assets with the plum, and overall it represents a modest improvement over its also-solid 2018 predecessor. Alright, this next song I'm going to play is the aforementioned Two Wounded Animals. Enjoy!
We all like the radio station, College Radio, 89.9 FM. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How's everybody doing tonight? I'd like to welcome to the stage the lyrically acclaimed. I like this young man because when he came out, he came out with the phrase, he went from ashy to classy. I like that. So everybody in the house, give a warm round of applause for the notorious B.I.G. The notorious B.I.G., ladies and gentlemen. Give it up for him, y'all. Oh. But it has never been as broke as me. I like that. When I was young, I had two pair of leaves. Besides that, the pinstripes and the gray. Uh-huh. The one I wore on Mondays and Wednesdays. Uh-huh. Once again, flirt, I'm sewing tigers on my shirt and alligators. Uh-huh. You want to see the inside? Huh. I see you later. They come the drama. Oh, that's that again with the fake. Uh-huh. Wow! Why you punch me in my face? Stay in your place. Play your position. Uh-huh. Here come my intuition. Uh-huh. Go in this against hockey. Rob him while his friends watch it. That hoes clock. Uh-huh. Here comes respect. His crew's your crew, or they might be next. Look at they man eye, big man, they never try. So we roll with them, uh, stole with them. I mean, loyalty. Looking for me milks at lunch, the milks with chocolate, the cookies, or the crunch. Ain't it? Oscars and blue and white duck. Ask the blunt. Just keep on pressing on. Just keep on pressing on. Sky is the limit, and you know that you can't 
about that. That's right, we will. Everybody, get your hands together.
Show Me off the 1993 compilation No Alternative. Last month, the late Chris Cornell's widow Vicky and the surviving members of Soundgarden announced that they've reached a peaceful resolution to the past few years of litigations between the two parties. In case you find yourself going, wait, what happened now? Well, it all started back when, actually, you know what? I already provided a detailed and comprehensive timeline of all the legal action between the Soundgarden guys and Vicky Cornell in episode 192 a couple years ago, and I don't really care to rehash it all again. So if you're interested in getting the full scoop, and you should be, then I recommend you head over to my archive at kbga.org teen-spirit and look up that 192nd show for yourself. Later, of course. In the meantime, all you really need to know is that the crux of the litigations was contested ownership of seven unused vocal tracks recorded by Chris Cornell before his death in May 2017. Vicky had been hoarding the vocal tracks over the years since, claiming rightful ownership, which she would have had if the tracks were intended for a solo recording. However, Soundgarden's Kim Thale, Ben Shepard, and Matt Cameron countered that since those seven tracks were actually intended for Soundgarden, they in fact legally belonged to the band. Those tracks would be required for the completion of a final posthumous Soundgarden album, so that album was set to remain stuck in limbo for as long as the legal rights remained deadlocked between the two parties. Well, there had been virtually no public movement on the case in the time since I last reported on it in March 2021, until just recently, that is. On April 17th, 2023, a joint statement was issued by the social media accounts of both Soundgarden and Chris Cornell, which reads as follows. Soundgarden and Vicky Cornell, on behalf of the estate of Chris Cornell, are happy to announce that they have reached an amicable out-of-court resolution. The reconciliation marks a new partnership between the two parties, which will allow Soundgarden fans around the world to hear the final songs that the band and Chris were working on. The two parties are united and coming together to propel, honor, and build upon Soundgarden's incredible legacy, as well as Chris's indelible mark on music history as one of the greatest songwriters and vocalists of all time. In a nutshell, this means that that final posthumous Soundgarden album that has existed as only a vague promise at most since Cornell's death can finally start becoming a reality. As for how long that may take, well, that'll likely depend on how much of the album the band was able to complete without possessing the vocal tracks. If I were to hazard a guess, though, I'm betting they hadn't poured much energy at all into the project while still struggling to obtain that final necessary component. And if it turns out that Cornell didn't leave them enough to work with for a new LP, they may end up having to reconceive it as an EP or a series of singles instead. At any rate, I'll be sure to keep you all abreast of those final Soundgarden recordings, whatever form they may eventually take, and hopefully review and play from them on the program someday. Anyway, before Soundgarden, I played Paper Shoes by Incubus off their 2006 album Light Grenades. Be the Hook by Pavement, off their 2022 deluxe reissue, Terror Twilight, Farewell Horizontal. Sky's the Limit by the Notorious B.I.G. featuring 112, off his 1997 album, Life After Death. And Flip the Phase by Caius, off their 2000 compilation, Muchas Gracias, The Best of Caius. You're still continuing to listen to Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. 
To like this show on Facebook, go to facebook.com SLTS2. And to hear this and other episodes of the program after the broadcast, go to kbga.org teen-spirit. Alright, next I'm going to review and play a song from the new Overkill album, Scorched. When Overkill announced their 20th studio album, Scorched, for release on the same day as the first new Metallica album since 2016, I couldn't fathom why they thought that might be a smart idea. I was like, are you guys actually trying to bury your first new album in four years, the longest gap between Overkill albums to date over a four-decade strong career? I mean, whenever Disney slots in a new Avengers movie for a certain weekend, don't other studios hoping to make money off of new films tend to give that weekend a wide berth? Metallica is Disney in this particular metaphor, you see. After hearing the new Overkill album, however, I'm thinking that was a decision made not so much out of practicality so much as out of sheer balls-out confidence. Overkill were undoubtedly, and justifiably, damn proud of their latest offering, and felt that it could stand tall against the Disney-slash-Marvel of the thrash metal world. And in many respects, stand tall it does. In fact, I think I might overall be a little more impressed with the new Overkill album than with the latest from Metallica. Scorched may be over 25 minutes shorter than Metallica's 72 seasons, but it is no less brutally, forcefully, uncompromisingly, and proficiently thrashy in its condensed 51-minute runtime. The only reprieve from the album's rusty chainsaw and brass knuckle onslaught comes in its seventh track and lone outlier, Fever. In stark contrast to everything else around it, Fever is a dynamic, methodical, early Sabbath-evoking number with atmospheric verses and a doomy chorus. It's far more of a reprieve than we ever get over the 77 minutes of 72 seasons, and the change of pace that provides Scorch is altogether welcome and by no means a momentum killer. The remaining nine tracks on the album are far more representative of Overkill's usual breakneck speed and take-no-prisoners ferocity, with just minor variations in tempo throughout. Much like the oft-referenced 72 seasons, Scorched as a whole can get repetitive at times and be an awful lot to take in in one sitting, but when taken individually, these songs are all certified thrash bangers, particularly the opening title track which is so good it could potentially serve as the only overkill song a person may ever need. The band is sounding tight as ever in 2023, between the raw power and technical prowess of dual guitarists Dave Linsk and Derek Taylor, sure-handed omnipresence of founding bassist and bandleader D.D. Verney, impressive speed and tenacity of fairly new drummer Jason Bittner, and the gleefully unhinged caterwaul of frontman Bobby Blitz Ellsworth, impossibly unwavering even in his 63rd year of life. It's as if the guys in Overkill are immune to the laws of aging and only capable of getting better and better over time, even if they're not growing more adventurous. Scorched is by no means a wheel-reinventing Overkill album. It is basically content to just do what Overkill's already been doing for about 40 years now, but it does it all about as well as they've ever done it before. And after as many years and albums as Overkill have under their belt, that alone commands respect. Alright, this next song I'm going to play is the album's standout closing track, Bag of Bones. Enjoy!
This is Silver Sprocket, host of Something Else, live every Wednesday from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on KBGA Missoula 89.9 FM. I feature avant-garde, electroacoustic, free jazz, and more creative music every week. You'll get to hear advanced new releases straight from the artists and record labels before anybody else and extensive interviews with the artists themselves. How about you give something else a try? Live every Wednesday from 8 to 10 p.m. on KBGA Missoula, 89.9 FM, and streaming at kbga.org.
Zdravo, ja sam Dino iz Bosne, ponosne, a vi slušate KBG iz Ula Montana. Aj, uzdravo. Someone called love Not as long as there are 
star trumpets, topics, vocal power. I guess I got it on center, but they're trying to clamp it down. Flight was waving the wrong way, so I shot it down. Get down and at the same time, come up down. The system's trying to shut this up. I don't give up, house because the words and thoughts still hit. And like I said, it's not a skit. Don't find out the hit, yeah. They know I don't need a drum kit. Make them say, oh, Don't go about it, that's true and legit. their 1998 compilation, Live and Rare. Congrats are in order for Rage Against the Machine, who will be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame later this year as part of the Class of 2023. Naturally, the band issued a statement to acknowledge their inclusion, and it's a bit too long and repetitious for me to want to regurgitate here, but in a nutshell, it highlights a bunch of the radical, anti-commercial acts they committed in their heyday, such as shutting down the New York Stock Exchange to shoot a music video, and expresses bemusement over the fact that they were chosen by the Rock Hall despite all of it. Of course it wasn't an easy path for Rage into the Rock Hall's hallowed halls. 
The band was rejected five times before finally getting the yes, having secured a nomination for all but one of the classes to come up since they first became eligible in 2017. The sixth time proved to be the charm, though, and now Rage have become just the third metal band to earn an exhibit in the hall after Black Sabbath and Metallica. Judas Priest, in case you forgot, weren't inducted last year as performers, but rather as recipients of the Rock Hall's Musical Excellence Award. As an apparent compromise, though, Rage are basically the only artist amid this year's class for fans of heavier music to get excited about. Predictably, Soundgarden and Iron Maiden were both snubbed, though in fairness, they were only facing their second nomination each. Rock Hall CEO Greg Harris recently suggested that any artist that's ever nominated is practically guaranteed to get in eventually, so both bands will inevitably have better luck in the future, but they've still evidently got a few more rejections to go before they find themselves in Rage's position. The complete Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2023 is as follows. Rage Against the Machine, Kate Bush, Willie Nelson, Cheryl Crow, George Michael, Missy Elliott, and The Spinners are all being inducted as performers. Al Cooper, Shaka Khan, and Bernie Taupin are this year's recipients of the Musical Excellence Award. DJ Cool Herc and Link Ray are getting the Early Influence Award. And Don Cornelius has been granted the Amit Ertegun Award for Lifetime Achievement. The 2023 induction ceremony is set to take place November 3rd at the Barclays Center in New York and will presumably be streamable from HBO Max, or I guess just Max now, once again. Anyway, before Rage, I played 80 by Green Day off their 1992 album Kerplunk, Spy by Gruntruck off their 2017 self-titled, and Gary Floyd by The Butthole Surfers off their 1985 debut, Psychic, Powerless, Another Man's Sack. And that about wraps up an ephemeral edition of Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. I've been your host, Ian. I'm closing out this episode with my review and a song from the new Smashing Pumpkins album, Autumn Act 3. Well, folks, this is not the review I was expecting to give right now. After feeling let down by the first two discs of the Smashing Pumpkins' new rock opera, Autumn, I had little hope for the third one to turn the tide. But to my surprise, Autumn Act 3 ended up being a far superior and, in the grand scheme of things, actually pretty good album. Acts 1 and 2, released in November 2022 and January 2023 respectively, largely misfired by being oversaturated with boring, interchangeable synth ballads that couldn't hold a candle to the Pumpkins' 1998 synth album Adore or even 2020's Seer. More regrettably, the entire Autumn Project was intended as a conceptual sequel to two now-classic and decidedly guitar-driven Pumpkins albums, 1995's Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, and 2000's Machina, The Machines of God, and that association only served to deepen the disappointment in the first two acts. So how does Act 3 manage to set itself apart from the middling efforts of its predecessors? Well, for starters, there is notably a lot more guitar on this one. At most, only about a third of the songs on both Acts 1 and 2 are guitar-driven or otherwise prominently feature guitar. For Act 3, however, that ratio is at least two-thirds, though that's ultimately a bit difficult to quantify considering how seamlessly interwoven the guitars and synths are on several tracks. In fact, Autumn Act 3 is a highly experimental album, undoubtedly more so than either of its forebears, but for the most part, the experimentation works. The entire disc, in contrast with the last two, goes to show that when you deliver enough of the goods, so to speak, your audience is more willing to indulge you when you want to branch out into strange and unprecedented territory. The song variety on Act 3 is impressive. 
Every single one of its 11 tracks feels distinct from not only the songs immediately before and after, but from basically every other song on the disc to boot. This keeps the album ever engaging with a high capacity to disarm or surprise. Admittedly though, its opening track doesn't inspire the utmost confidence that things are going to be much different this time. Sojourner feels like yet another of those boring interchangeable synth ballads I called out towards the beginning of this review. However, it does have quite a bit more going on than the rest, with multiple movements and a lovely Santana-esque guitar solo in the middle, and the album pretty much only gets better from there, offering no shortage of stunning moments and change-ups over its near 54-minute runtime. For instance, the very next track, That Which Animates the Spirit, is a percussive, chord-heavy, bona fide rock song with an epic and grandiose feel, sounding almost as if it were meant to be the true album opener. Cenotaph is a charming little number that blends tranquil guitars with shimmering synths and is sandwiched right between In Lieu of Failure and Harmageddon, a pair of kick-ass rockers that make for worthy company amid such melancholy cuts as Bodies, Jelly Belly, and An Ode to No One. Spellbinding, with its anthemic chorus and high-energy guitar and synth combo, is essentially a Smashing Pumpkins AOR song, and I mean that as a compliment. Pacer is probably the best synth track out of the entire Autumn trilogy, invoking the liveliness and keyboard intricacy of mid-80s Depeche Mode, and the nine-minute Intergalactic, which effectively serves as the trilogy's climax, phases back and forth between quiet, atmospheric synth passages and Jane's Addiction-esque musical freakouts marked by eastern-tinged electric guitars weaving around a frenzied, galloping drumbeat from Jimmy Chamberlain. Overall, Autumn Act 3 is perhaps the best disc that the semi-reunited Pumpkins have put out thus far, demonstrating a band that's still in touch with what worked for them in their heyday, while remaining sufficiently inspired to continue pushing their sound into interesting new places. However, it's still not on the level of the band's most revered work, and ultimately not quite enough to redeem the entire Autumn project. If you're curious about Autumn, I would recommend skipping the first two discs and just treating the third as a standalone album. Sure, there are a handful of good songs spread between Acts 1 and 2, and you're certainly free to listen to the album cover to cover if you wish, but you may find yourself feeling like Millhouse from The Simpsons, and that you're just waiting for them to get to the fireworks factory. Alright, considering all the belly aching I did in my last two Smashing Pumpkins reviews over the relative lack of guitar on Autumn, I feel a little silly about this, but I'm going to close out this episode on the only track from Act 3 with virtually no guitars whatsoever. Really, though, I would have no reason to complain about Autumn's overabundance of synth tracks if they were all as strong as this. This is that aforementioned Depeche Mode evoking number, Pacer. Happy trails, Missoula.
Oh 